The sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. And there we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. These verses that we just read, they provide a summary and a conclusion to the long section in Hebrews that we've been in, a section that we know describes the priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a long section that we started way back in Hebrews chapter 4 as we have been working through the epistle to the Hebrews. And we have seen how for several chapters the inspired author of Hebrews has been explaining the glorious and accomplished work of our Lord Jesus. And now with these verses that we just read, we see something of a summary and uh, conclusion. And I word, uh, use that word uh, conclusion cautiously because I remember in the church I grew up in as a child, the pastor would often say, in conclusion, uh, during his sermon. And that usually meant that he had about 20 more minutes of, of preaching time left. Um, and so our visitors you know, in church would be really excited, but we all knew what he meant when he said, in conclusion. And so it's kind of the same thing uh, here. It's a summary and a conclusion, but it's wrapping up the theological section that we have been working through of Christ's high priesthood. There's still more that we'll see in the book of Hebrews. As the writer, as we move on from this section in the weeks to come, will teach us and will show us by the Holy Spirit how we are to now apply the truths of Christ's uh, finished work to our lives, uh, what it means to have assurance and perseverance based on Christ's finished work, what it means for us and our hope, uh, as we will look especially at Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith where the author lists Old Testament examples of those who persisted in hope because they trusted in God's promises of salvation. And so in our text this morning, the author focuses again first on the perfection of the work of atonement that Jesus has accomplished for his people. As we look at verses 11 through 14, our first point, that Christ has provided a superior sacrifice. Now, in these verses, the inspired author describes the old covenant sacrifices 
to show why they were inferior to the full and final offering that Christ provided in himself. And if we look at verse 11, we see he lists four reasons that can be drawn <clears throat> excuse me, from the text. He says, first, the sacrifices under the Old Covenant were presented daily. This is all showing their inferiority. You see in verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service. So there were those offerings that were given on the Day of Atonement once a year, but there were also daily offerings presented at the tabernacle and the temple. And they were showing their inferiority because of the need for their repetition, that they had to be made over and over again, thereby revealing their ineffectiveness. Secondly, so we look at verse 11, the inferiority of those sacrifices is revealed in the fact that the priests had to stand up when the offerings were being presented. We read, and every priest stands daily at his service. We've noted before in the book of Hebrews where the author points this out, that standing means that there is ongoing work. The work is not completed. And so as the priest was standing, he was demonstrating that this work of atonement was not complete. Those sacrifices were ineffective. They were inefficient of, their, of themselves. Thirdly, the inferiority of the sacrifices was revealed in the fact that they had to be offered again and again, daily, again, repeatedly, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices for sins, we read in verse 11. And fourthly, the author really gets to the heart of the point. Those sacrifices offered daily, repeatedly, still could never accomplish the removal of sins. He says it very clearly at the end of verse 11, which can never take away sins. So this is the point the inspired author has been making all along, isn't it, loved ones? That in and of themselves, apart from the work of Christ and faith in him, those sacrifices were ineffective. They were given to Israel as part of the ceremonial law to remind Israel of sin. In their constantly being need to be repeated, Israel was reminded of their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. And thereby, it was driving them to Christ, causing them to seek salvation in him alone. It was teaching Israel, God's people, that sin is serious. And when you and I read the Older Covenant, we draw that same conclusion as we see the need for sacrifice to be made, the need for atonement, and how seriously God takes sin. It is all driven home for us in the Older Covenant. But it's also very evident that Atonement would not be found in those Old Covenant sacrifices because, again, they proved by their repetition that they were ineffective in and of themselves. See, Israel, what Israel needed to do was they were to look at those sacrifices, but they were also to look through them, through them to the reality that those sacrifices pointed to. I used the analogy of the sacraments last week. And when we see the waters of baptism being poured on the head of a person, we understand that those waters are not 
magical in and of themselves, but they point to the reality of the cleansing blood of Christ for us. And that bread and that wine points to the body and blood of Christ. So we don't want to confuse, we have this saying in Reformed circles, the sign and the thing signified. We don't want to confuse the sign with the thing that it points to uh, because that would cause us to put more faith in the sign than in the reality uh, that those signs point to and the greater thing that they reveal. And so the Hebrew Christians, therefore, see those Hebrew Christians who were being persecuted in the first century that the writer is writing to, if they turn from Christ back to the older covenant sacrifices, if they return to worship in the temple, if they return to worship on those feast days like the Day of Atonement, and if they return to worshiping God through those older covenant offerings, what they would be doing is essentially returning from, uh, would be turning from the reality back to the shadows. They would be turning from the superior back to what is inferior. It would be turning from the thing signified back to uh, the sign itself. This argument is summed up so clearly for us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, where the author of Hebrews says, For it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why is it impossible? Why weren't those sacrifices effective? Well, loved ones, it, It's because it wasn't animals that sinned against God. It was man. It wasn't bulls and goats that sinned against God. It was man. It was Adam. And so it would not be an animal that would atone for sin. It would have to be a human being. This is what is revealed clearly in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that verse that we often refer to as the first gospel, the promise of redemption that God gives to Adam and to his descendants. The promise we read there is that it wouldn't be an animal that would redeem mankind, but it would be a descendant of Adam's who would bruise the head of the serpent. And it would be a descendant of Adam's who would himself be bruised for our own sin. And so that's why it's so important that the author quotes Psalm 40. It's so significant for us to see. This psalm that was quoted in our text last week, the psalm that we sung today, which so clearly reveals God's plan of redemption, that God sent his son to be born in human likeness, to be born under the law in order to redeem his people, in order to be that final sacrifice for sins. If you recall, the writer says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, quoting from Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. As David is writing the psalm, and the psalm is messianic, it's speaking about David's greater son, who would be the one who would be incarnated, who would receive that body that was prepared for him, that body that was prepared for him in order that he might come and atone for our sin and accomplish the work of salvation and accomplish it, not just partially, but fully and finally, completely, eternally. And this is what we read in our text. I want you to keep in mind 
the ways that the author has already pointed to the inferiority of those old covenant sacrifices in verse 11. As he now, by contrast, shows the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. This is three reasons he he gives us here for Christ's superior sacrifice. You see verse 12 first, that it was offered once for all time. There we read in verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, so clearly explained to us, isn't it, loved ones, that Christ remains our priest in heaven, but his work of atonement on earth is complete. It was one sacrifice for all time. See, this is in contrast to that daily repetitive nature of the older covenant priesthood that needed to repeatedly offer the sacrifices for themselves and for God's people. And so we see the writer points to the fact that that one sacrifice, that one offering was the last because it was the best. See this in verse 18 of our passage that we read this morning where he says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer anything that you can bring to God as an offering for your sin that could be better than what Christ offered to the Heavenly Father on the cross. He's essentially telling the Hebrews, stop thinking that you could return to the older covenant and please God in that way. That has been done with. It has been fulfilled because the superior sacrifice of Christ has come. Secondly, we see that it was superior because it culminated in Christ sitting down at the right hand of God. We see this in verse 12 and 13. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Remember, this is in contrast to the older covenant priesthood who remained standing during their service to God. In contrast to them, Christ is seated. His work is complete, fully, and finally. We read about this completed work in John chapter 17, verse 4 through 5, from the chapter we read this morning. The chapter in which Jesus is praying to the Father, and we read, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, Christ has been enthroned in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. That psalm has been fulfilled, Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ has accomplished the work of redemption of our salvation, and the evidence of it is in his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. God was demonstrating to all of creation that his son was victorious over sin, and so now he is seated at his right hand as king. Thirdly, we see in our text that Christ's sacrifice was superior because it actually accomplished the perfection of those for whom it was offered. It actually accomplished the perfection of those for whom Christ died. See this in verse 14. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, this perfection that he speaks of here is that our sins have been completely removed from us. In fact, as you look at that word perfected in verse 14, notice that it's in the past tense, perfected. In Greek, this tense signifies, and it's significant because it connotes a past action with present Result. It's something that's done in the past that continues to affect us in the present. So what the author is pointing at is the sacrifice of Christ was so superior. It was so perfect. It was so effective that it not only cleansed sin at that moment, but it cleansed sin in eternity past and for eternity to come. It cleansed sin in the older covenant and in uh, the newer covenant, once for all. One theologian describes the cross as something like an eagle that we can imagine. An eagle that has wings spread over the old covenant and one wing spread over the new covenant. And that eagle is embracing all of God's people. And that way the cross is effective in atoning for the sins of all of God's people, old covenant and new. It's an action that reaches into the past and continues to affect the future. And so this word perfected speaks of believers now as being whole or complete. We've been made fitting for relationship with God. And we can now enter into God's presence because we have been fully and finally cleansed of sin. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith explains to us in chapter 8, section 5, where it explains to us the importance of Christ, our mediator. We read there, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. He purchased not only reconciliation, but also an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. We have been perfected for all time. But notice also, loved ones, in verse 14, that the author speaks of those who are being sanctified. We have been perfected, but he also says that we are being sanctified. Now, this is in reference to the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives as believers. That now, having been declared holy, having been perfected, been made fitting to enter into God's presence, the Holy Spirit is now working in our lives to conform us to Christ's likeness. And so this is the point that the author makes in the following verses. As he reminds us of the superiority of the new covenant, and specifically, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he applies the benefits of Christ to us, to believers. We know when we speak about the new covenant that Christ inaugurated the new covenant in his blood, as he said in the upper room discourse before the Lord's Supper. And that Pentecost was that moment in history when he sent the Holy Spirit 
to indwell believers and to apply to all believers uh, the benefits that he merited and that he earned for us. And so this is what the writer of Hebrews uh, points to as he uh, points to the, the fact that what Christ has inaugurated is a superior covenant. We've seen our second point this morning. We read in verses 15 through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, in these verses, the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31. It's a passage that he's quoted at length already in chapter 8. And in this prophecy that Jeremiah includes the promise that in the new covenant, God would bring about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people. As we've noted before, in the old covenant, God gave his people the law, but that law, that covenant, did not give his people the ability to love it and to keep it. They did not have a heart or an inner disposition and desire to obey God. Now, this doesn't mean that no one in the older covenant had a renewed heart, but it means that only a small remnant did. And those who did have renewed hearts, they enjoyed fewer privileges than you and I do in the newer covenant as Christians today. As I've said, they were living in the dawn of revelation. You and I live in the brightness of the noonday sun in God's revelation and in God's glory, in this glory of the new covenant. And so what we see the writer pointing at as he quotes the prophet Jeremiah is that in the new covenant, God has taken his moral law, which before was written only externally on tablets of stone. He has taken this law and he has written it on our hearts and on our minds. He has internalized it in the hearts of his people. And so now, not only do you and I know God's law, but we have also a God-given desire to obey it. The Holy Spirit has regenerated us. The Holy Spirit has renewed our wills. The Holy Spirit has granted us a love for Christ. And so now our desire is no longer to please only ourselves, but it is to live for God and to please him alone. So we would say that we are definitely sanctified. We are declared holy. We are made righteous. We are set apart by the once for all accomplished work of Christ. But we are also being made holy. Progressive sanctification that we speak about sometimes at our church. That it is a progressive thing that the Holy Spirit now does in our hearts and in our minds. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, section 1, summarizes how sanctification takes place in the believer's life. And it's a bit of a longer section, but I want to read it. And I want you to pay attention as as you pay attention, listen to how the confession describes the process of sanctification. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally 
through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified, and they are more and more quickened or made alive and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. The confession and the scriptures point to the fact that we have been freed from the uh, guilt of sin and also from the dominion of sin as we have been declared holy and we are in this process of progressive sanctification that the Holy Spirit brings about in the Christian's life. We sing this, the hymn, Rock of Ages, and the hymn has a line that says, be of, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and its power. And when we sing about what Christ has accomplished, he has accomplished a work that frees us from both the guilt and the power of sin. Our sin has been removed. We will be declared righteous on that last day. But the dominion of sin, loved ones, has also been broken in our lives. You might be saying this morning, well, I don't feel like the dominion of sin has been broken in my life. In fact, uh, my daily struggle against sin is evidence about the fact that the dominion of sin has not been broken in my life, isn't it? Isn't that evidence of the fact that, that this progressive sanctification isn't actually happening in me? Loved ones, notice the fact that the mere reality that you feel conviction of sin, that you feel displeased with your sin, and that you love the Savior and you want to be forgiven, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, in my life. See, because the truly regenerate Christian cannot be content to live in sin. We may struggle with besetting sins, but even these sins we long to be completely free of, don't we? We know that and we feel that they are a burden to us. That though we commit them, we are never at peace in them. We are like that prodigal son who realized as he was among the pigs, who realized what he was missing and what he longed for. In the life of the Christian loved ones, there has been a radical breach with the guilt and with the power of sin. And so then can we become perfectly sanctified in this life if the dominion of sin has been broken? The confession in section 2 summarizes for us the reality. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There remaining sin, uh, still some remnants of corruption in every part from which arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so there is still this remaining corruption in us. There is, as John Murray says, a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. There is some sin that remains, but as one theologian said, no sin reigns. And one thing that we know, loved ones, is that through Christ's victory on the cross, we can be certain 
of progress and ultimate victory over sin in that last day. The confession summarizes for us in section 3. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The confession summarizing there for us, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, God is working in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Loved ones, all of this is brought about because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and through his outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds. Through the ministry, it has all come about through the ministry of our great high priest. And so how do we then apply this reality of having a great high priest in heaven who is ministering to us. Well, loved ones, the way we might apply it this morning is to consider that we can minister to others as our great high priest ministers to us. And by that I mean when we consider the what we call the mediatorial offices of the Lord Jesus Christ, the office of prophet, priest, and king, we know that he fulfilled those offices perfectly, those offices that were present in Old Testament Israel, that he fully accomplished in his life and ministry, that he as our king rules and reigns over us. As our prophet, he perfectly reveals God's will for us. And as our priest, he perfectly atoned for our sins. But now as Christians, as followers of Christ, we mimic or copy that pattern in our own lives in some small, often imperfect way. We as kings over our own spheres that God has placed us in, we rule in the name of Christ. As parents, we rule over our household, and we do so in love as Christ rules over us and loves us. As prophets, we, just as Christ came proclaiming the good news of the gospel, we tell others of the good news of the kingdom. And as priests, as priests of the Lord Jesus, we pray for others. We intercede for others. As fathers and mothers, we pray for our children. As we pray for our unbelieving family and friends, uh, even for our Christian family and friends. We are serving and helping and loving and caring. What we are doing is we are living in the light of the love that Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us, has accomplished. We are doing it in his name and for his glory. Amen.